Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to this special summer episode of the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, director of AEI's Academic Programs, and it's been a full and exciting summer for us here at AEI. In June, we were joined by nearly 240 undergraduate students for our annual Summer Honors Program, where students take week-long seminars with AEI scholars and other civic leaders. To learn more about opportunities to engage with AEI as a college student, check out aei.org slash academic programs. This year, AEI was pleased to welcome as one of our summer instructors, New York Times opinion columnist David French. During David's week here at AEI, he recorded a couple of podcasts. He and Sarah Isger of The Dispatch hosted a live recording of their legal podcast, Advisory Opinions, before an audience of our summer students. We'll link to that in the show notes. And then David was gracious enough to sit down with two students in his class for an interview on this show, The Campus Exchange. So I'm thrilled to bring you that conversation between David French and Michaela Ferrario from Cornell and Ethan Wilmot from Michigan. Michaela and Ethan uh, were in David's class this summer, but they're also both a part of our residential program, the Summer Honors Academy. They're with AEI for a full summer of programming while they work summer internships. Michaela is interning with the Library of Congress, and Ethan is at AEI's Critical Threats Project. In this conversation with David, they discuss polarization in American society, civil-military relations, and David's career. It's a really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks, Jeff. My name is Ethan Wilmot, and I am a rising junior at the University of Michigan, where I'm studying public policy. And my name is Michaela Ferrario. I'm a rising senior at Cornell University, double majoring in American Studies and Political Philosophy within the College Scholar Program. This week, both Ethan and I have had the honor of learning from David French in the AEI Summer Honors Program course, American Unity and the Promise of Pluralism. David is currently an opinion columnist of the New York Times and is the best-selling author of Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, published in September 2021. Previously, he was a senior editor at The Dispatch, a contributor to The Atlantic, and a senior writer for National Review. David has served as the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression and is a JAG officer during the Iraq War in the U.S. Army Reserves. David graduated with a JD from Harvard Law School and with a BA from Lipsum University. We are so excited to have you here today. Well, thanks for having me. So several years ago, you engaged in a landmark debate with Sorab Amari um, following the publication of his article Against David Frenchism. <laughs> for the listeners who are not familiar with your work, would you care to define David Frenchism? Sure. Um, wow, it's already been several years since that happened. Uh, yeah, David <laughs> Frenchism is pretty simply defined as the defense of American classical liberalism uh, without abandoning civility and decency. So to give some backdrop, the culture war, if you want to call it that, in the United States is changing a bit. And so we've always thought of it along just straight up policy lines. What are you, what's your stance on gun control? What's your stance on abortion rights? What's your stance on religious liberty? And these specific policy positions around important constitutional areas has been, that's kind of from a legal and political standpoint, that's been the, the culture war. Now there's a whole other cultural layer uh, that doesn't get as involved in, in law and politics quite as much, but that's how we've sort of always defined the culture war. But 
beginning in the mid-2010s, the actual classical liberal system in the United States itself came under increasing attack. And when you, what you mean by classical liberalism is sort of a rights-based uh, legal and political order rooted in the founding documents, rooted in the Bill of Rights and the Civil War Amendments, um, what you would call small-l liberalism itself. Uh, with the Petra, publication of one of Deneen's books uh, where he's, he was taking on liberalism itself with the rise of some parts of critical theory on the left that take on liberalism itself, we actually began to see things morph and change a lot to where you actually had another culture war going on, which is liberalism versus illiberalism or um, liberalism versus authoritarianism. And so from the right and from the left, there have been these direct attacks on that American small-l liberal pluralistic structure of government. And so in many ways, that's a culture war that sits over and above their traditional policy-based differences that we have, because it goes to the very system of government that we possess. And so Sorab represents one faction on the right that is just kind of done with small-l liberalism. They believe it contributes to excessive individualization, atomization of society, that it degrades religious faith and practice. And I strongly disagree on all of those fronts. Uh, and so that was the fundamental battle over David Frenchism. And kind of a subtext, and it wasn't always a subtext, it often became text, was um, many of the illiberal factions on the right saw in Donald Trump a, a real vehicle for their ambitions. And so I was not in support of Donald Trump, and that got layered into the argument as well. And so uh, it really echoes. And it's interesting. You begin to see new political alliances now in the United States as you'll have left liberals and right liberals, again, small L liberals, um, that are joining together to take on and confront far left liberal illiberals and far right illiberals. It's a, so there's been a, an interesting and strange reshuffling of alliances depending on the issue. And so um, we really are into an argument in many ways about what power the state has. What what does state power mean? What are its limits? In a way that we weren't quite having that discussion as much before. On that point, David, throughout your career, you've been adamant that the First Amendment applies to all Americans, not only those of whom you agree And yet today we find that First Amendment protections are under virulent attack on college campuses from both the left and the right. With that being the case, how do you advise us as college students to seek to cultivate a culture of free speech on our campuses? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, it's very easy to stand up for your own free speech rights. That that's everybody does that. Even the authoritarians do that. They they will wield their own speech Uh, They're very happy to wield their own speech and very happy to shut down yours. And so when someone tries to censor them, they will yell First Amendment, First Amendment, and then happily try to silence someone else. I mean, this is a pattern I've seen many times. So as a concrete matter, I mean, of course, you're going to want to defend your own free speech rights if they're infringed, if if the university tries to shut you down. And fire, for example, has been incredibly effective legally, culturally, and in confronting that censorious spirit on campus. But the other other thing you can do is, and this is one thing that's actually very powerful, is defend the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. Going back to the earliest days of 
my defense of free speech on campus, one of the most effective things we could do that will often even prevent litigation was fine. And most of the time when I was working on this, it was right. It was groups on the right that were being shut down. Um, when I was working on this, we would recruit allies from the left. And many times allies from the left would end the dispute. They would just end it because the fact that the university realized, oh, it's more ideologically complicated or, oh, we're going to we might tick off a constituency we won't you know, we don't want to tick off uh, made a real difference. So standing up for the free speech rights of others, even when you disagree with them, and you can state your disagreement up front and clearly, um, but, you know, standing up for those those rights is, I, I think, an absolutely indispensable key thing to do. Thank you. Uh, during our class this week, you mentioned that although college campuses are increasingly diverse with regard to race, gender, and sexuality, many of them continue to be ideological echo chambers. By contrast, you suggested that the U.S. military is one of the most diverse institutions in the United States with regard to both demographics and ideology. How should this inform college students who are considering or should consider military service? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, look, if you want to experience America, join the military. And when, when I say if you want to experience America, I'm not just talking about the fact that during your military career, you'll go all over America. <laughs> Um, especially if you've grown up in kind of a geographically isolated place or not so much geographically isolated, but you've been geographically isolated. You've grown up in one place. Yeah, if you join the military, you're going to see this country. Depending on what deployments you have, you'll see parts of the world. But it's really a lot deeper than that. The, the U.S. military is truly drawn from all demographics of American society. So you're not just going to have your considerable race, gender, ethnic diversity, you're going to also have an enormous amount of viewpoint diversity. Not just political, cultural. I mean, people coming from all different kinds of cultural backgrounds that inform their views. You'd be surprised to find how little politics is discussed in the military, and when it is discussed, it's often not emotional uh, in the same way that it is often on college campuses. Uh, you've kind of got more important things to do <laughs> than get really angry at members of your own platoon over politics. And so it actually tends to place politics in its right sense of proportion and perspective, uh, exposes you to the broad range of not just American ideas, but just Americans. Uh, and it also exposes you to this country in the raw geographic sense as well. Um, you're going to go to places in the military that you would never visit on vacation. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. Killeen, Texas, where Fort Hood is, is not a vacation destination. Fort Polk in Louisiana, not a vacation destination. But this is where, you know, people live and, you know, a, a big part of the American heartland is. And so you're going to see America. You're going to experience Americans. And, you know, the one the one caveat I'd say is that uh, the, the one area of real underrepresentation, I think, is sort of amongst the American coastal elite. Uh, you see too few of those folks. And I think it's time for, you know, the, the parents and kids of sort of the coastal elite to, you know, when they're thinking about their post-college plans to add the military as an option. Like college campuses, many churches recently have become ideological echo chambers. The growing politicization of the church has, by extension, led many college students to feel disconnected from their faith and disillusioned with the church. Amidst these circumstances, and as many of these trends continue to sharpen, how do you advise college students to find hope in their faith 
and to seek to reform the church from within. Yeah, this is a big issue. One of the things that I think, is, you know, one, one thing that's really important is if you are a Christian and you're feeling dis- disillusioned, just know you're not alone. So just that that knowledge alone act, helps people because I, I get this message all the time. They will say, until I started reading your columns, I thought I was alone. And these messages just pour into me all the time because there's such a dominant partisan culture, especially in within evangelicalism, that you can start to feel that there's something wrong with you if you're not going along with the crowd. But no, there's a lot of people who are not raising their voices because there's such a high cost to raising their voice. Um, that are feeling also quite disconnected. And so understand that you're not alone and then seek out a church that as much as you can tell is one that is not politics centered. Of course, a church should acknowledge politics as part of our lives and, and help provide us with the tools to engage in political discussion and political activism, but not center it. Um, We've seen a lot of churches centering politics. My friend Russell Moore has a phrase that he's used called crazy as a church growth strategy, where churches have leaned in to the culture wars to such an extent that many ways it feels like they're just a Christian arm of the Trump movement or the Republican Party. Uh, There's a really long article in The Atlantic, essay in The Atlantic this week that emphasizes, for example, how much a Pentecostal movement called the New Apostolic Reformation has become so heavily politicized and so heavily Christian nationalist. So you have to do your research. And then the other thing is don't get too discouraged because you can't go back and read the Pauline epistles and think for one second that even the early church had it all straightened out. (laughs) Um, My gosh, I mean, 1 Corinthians, the letters to the Corinthians are sometimes pretty excoriating. You know, the letters to the churches in Revelation, my goodness, excoriating. The church has always struggled with sin. There's not a golden age. And so um, there's always been a need for faithful people within a struggling church. And so don't be discouraged. This is not necessarily a terribly unique time. And interestingly, in many ways, it's actually easier to be a dissenter from mistaken orthodoxy than it has in recent past. For example, try belonging to a white evangelical church in Alabama in the 1950s and saying, you know, I think we should do something about Jim Crow uh, and segregation. That would be infinitely more difficult than putting your hand up, you know, as I've done in churches and saying, I think we need to slow our roll on all this MAGA stuff. Uh, yeah, there's social ostracization and there's there's backlash and things like that. but. My gosh, nothing compared to some of the things that we've seen in the American past. And so have courage, take heart. You're not alone. These times are not terribly unusual. Um, and, you know, the scripture is replete with examples of people sort of despairing, thinking, I'm, it's only me. And you always find out that it's never only you. And, and I find that encouraging. And I also find that historical perspective, while reminding us how fallen we all are and how fallen our institutions, including the church, can be to be somewhat encouraging to know that this isn't the darkest timeline. 
Continuing off that point, um, earlier this week during our class, you mentioned that over the course of the last few years, you found that the leaders of institutions are more important than you had originally thought. Would you please share with us why this is so and what characteristics make a good leader? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. So I used to have there. There's this theory of history called the great man theory of history, which I don't want to oversimplify it, but the name's pretty self-explanatory that great leaders have arisen who've shaped the course of human events decisively in one direction or the other. Hitler was a not great in the moral sense, but powerful man who shaped history in a profoundly negative direction. Churchill countered him with a strength of will equal to or greater than Hitler's, but shaping history in a very different way. And you can go back and Lincoln, you know, I was just running past the Lincoln Memorial earlier today. Um, but I used to, I used to not be entirely convinced on how, on the notion that leaders could be so pivotal. You also had to have a lot of followers, <laughs> and I still think you have to have a lot of followers. You have to have the people who will charge the hill if you say charge the hill, for example, and have the courage and fortitude to do that. But at the same time, I've now seen how much leaders shape character. Uh, and how much leaders shape individuals and nations. And and I would put it like this, a leader for whatever part of the world that is, you know, with, under their sphere of influence, it's like they're shaping the course of a river. They're setting the current in the direction of a river. And you can swim against that current for a while. You can swim against that for some time. But you'll either get tired after a while and sort of have to swim to the bank and check out, or you're going to get swept up. And this is something that you've seen, for example, in toxic political movements in the United States where people will say, well, I'm just using this to get what I want, but I'm not going to fall for the ethos and the culture. And the next thing you know, the ethos and the culture becomes in many ways more dominant, a more dominant aspect of the movement than the policies. And, and we've seen that in the United States where, you know, for example, the, the rise of cancel culture. Well, you have a a means, or I mean an end and goal, you know, the greater civility or decency or um, eradicating racism or racial justice or whatever it is, it's sort of the impetus for cancel culture. Um, but what ends up happening is a toxic cruelty that is designed to destroy human beings' careers and and in, in their reputations becomes essentially the dominant characteristic of the movement to overshadow everything else. And there's an absolute right-wing analog to that that we've seen. I, you know, even local party committees in the GOP are now shaped by Trump's personality and character in a way that a lot of the same folks who are sitting in those seats would have denied would ever happen to them. Uh, but they've, in, they've become a part of that stream, a part of that current. And it is very hard to resist a negative current for any length of time. So, you know, for leaders, leaders have to have both in mind both means and ends. They cannot disregard the morality of means to accomplish their ends. And so a, a leader is going to have a healthy relationship in their mind between means and ends. Um, a leader is going to value the people who are within the organization. They're going to value treating them well and treating them fairly. You know, look, we used to not have trouble defining a good leader. This was not a hard thing. It, you you kind of knew it when you saw it and experienced it. And it always included 
both a conviction towards the goal and purpose of the organization, whether it's a, a division in the United States Army that has been given a task or an objective of a hill to take or a town to recapture, um, but also in the pursuit of that objective, a good commander takes care of his troops. They take care of them and often the most sort of basic of ways. Um, and so we've always thought about this. We've always thought about this. If you've been in a corporation, if you worked for a company, um, you know what a good manager is. It's somebody who can make money for the company and also build a sort of esprit de corps and a sense of mutual respect amongst the employees. I mean, this is, this is old stuff. It's easy to sort of define it. It's hard to achieve it, which is why truly good leaders are relatively rare. They often have, sometimes they have no strengths at all, but they often sometimes have overweighted strengths in one area or the other. They're too focused on the ends or too focused on the means. And holding them in balance is, you know, uh, uh, is quite, you know, can be quite the challenge, but it has to be done. Nowadays, leaders often acquire and exercise influence through the media. And yet the development of the Internet and social media in recent decades has contributed to the rapid decline of local news coverage. This has helped produce a media culture in which local issues have been made national and national issues are increasingly being fought at the local level. How can we as college students contribute to a better media culture at both the local and national level? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it is absolutely true that local issues issues become national. I'm, for a while, I felt like Fox News was going to set up a bureau in Loudoun County to cover the Loudoun County School Board. And, and my own county where I live in Tennessee, Williamson County, has had multiple national incidents um, because of the conduct of local activists. And so Williamson County has sort of become kind of the paradigm of when the far right runs amok. And then Loudoun County has become sort of the paradigm of when the far left runs amok in the worlds of education. And so they they get inordinate attention for the actual impact of the local activism. So you're absolutely right. And they get that national attention because they're they're deemed to be paradigmatic. Look, this is what these people are really like. If you give these people power, they'll be like, you know, Moms for Liberty in Williamson County or whatever. And which is often, it, it's a good way to inflame people. It's a good way to alarm people when often in most jurisdictions in the country, while you might have activists and radicals on the fringes, by and large, our local jurisdictions are not run by, the, by radicals, by and large. Um, and the same thing with sort of nationalizing local politics. Uh, people have been running for school board to fight national ideologies that are not even present in their local schools. And so it's a real problem. And, and I, I don't have a good solution to it because, you know, on the one hand, I think you can really try hard to revitalize local media. And we should try really hard to revitalize local media. But the culture war has become so all-consuming in the political class that sometimes I, I literally wonder how much demand there is for the local news. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you this, there are an awful lot of people in local communities who are sick of this nationalization. You know, they're saying, why are we spending one, two, three consecutive school board meetings talking about critical race theory that isn't being taught in our schools when we have major traffic flow problems outside of a middle school or when we have had a nightmare of redistricting that families are still sort of sorting out where their kids are going to go to school. And you have all of these local issues. I, I was at a, in a community in Nebraska, and, and I saw this 
it, it's a small community, but it had this really phenomenal public water park, like just really phenomenal. And I thought, you know, that's a gift to the, to the community that the city fathers thought to, and I just use the term city fathers in the gender neutral sense, <laughs> fathers and mothers, the city leaders, there we go, the city leaders uh, thought to do something that for a relatively um, you know, economically distressed community provided something really nice for all of the citizens, learned a little bit about it and everything. And then I was thinking, well, we couldn't do that where I am because we've got to talk about critical race theory more. And you have to realize that a lot of what's happening in these national fights is really distracting people from the actual community need that exists. And, and sometimes the most basic good governance senses like, how can we just govern and run this city better? Um, but that energy is all around that national fight. And so the one thing that I say, it's very hard as a college student to make a kind of community-wide impact. It's really hard, and we shouldn't put that burden on college students. But here's where you're learning um, how to engage in the body politic. And one of the best ways to do it is, is I've said this many times, is model the values you seek to advance. So even if you're the only person in the room who's like counsel, you know, I hate to interrupt this lively critical race theory discussion, but you should know that the air conditioning in, you know, Polk Middle School doesn't work anymore and it hasn't worked for a month. And what are your plans to fix it? Like, which really, when you get down to it, is making kind of more of a difference in the educational experience of kids. And this this translates across a number of fronts. Um, so I do think that being a voice that can recenter a conversation on immediate needs or the actual realistic needs of a community, I think, can be quite beneficial and, to, and will strike some people's like drinking a glass of cool water in the desert because that's what a lot of people are actually there for. One final question that we ask every guest on uh, this podcast is, what is one thing you know now that you wish you knew in college? Okay, so this is a good question, and it's one thing, what I'm going to say is one thing I intellectually knew in college, but didn't experientially know, and those two things are different, because you can know something intellectually, but not really have experienced it, and it doesn't hit in the same way, and it's this old cliche, it's life is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, one of the things that I've found, especially with very talented uh, college students, is they're in a real hurry. <laughs> they're in a real hurry. And, and I remember having all kinds of insecurity and self-doubt and about, you know, I'm, I'm just out of law school and I'm not loving my first job. Oh, no. You know, or um, gosh, I'm 30 and I'm not quite where I want to be. Oh, no. And what I began to realize over time is all of the suboptimal experiences or the things that didn't work out quite the way I wanted them to work out were all part of a really important learning process for me. And that patience is a real virtue. Um, and that you should not be constantly sort of testing your career progress to your immediate peers. Um, all of these things build insecurity. All of these things build a sense where you feel like you're in a hurry when you don't need to be in a hurry when experience by itself is a tremendous teacher. And you're not graduating from college with experience. You're graduating with, from college with a lot of knowledge and sometimes a lot of theory, but not a lot of experience. And 
you often see that problem in, unfortunately, the news business is often a youth-dominated business in many ways, partly because it's so financially distressed that, guess what? Young college grads are cheap. <laughs> you don't have as high of salary demands because you don't have big families and big mortgages yet and all of this stuff. And so the news business often biases towards youth, and um, that can be a real problem. It can be a real problem because you have not experienced as many things, and so you often think you understand how things work a lot more than you actually have experienced how things work. And so having patience in your own career and viewing experience as having a value all of its own, regardless of whether you're sort of the top of the at the tip of the spear at the top of the pack and I know for me it was incredibly valuable to have had a lot of different experiences before I entered the world of journalism and it gave me some advantages when I when I left the world of law full-time and entered the world of journalism most legal journalists haven't argued multiple cases in courts of appeal for example um most national security you know, reporters haven't spent time in the military. You know, the, these kinds of things uh, actually gave me a tremendous amount of perspective that is so often missing from our debates. Uh, pe- debates get abstract quickly because people lack grounded experience. So um, my best, my best uh, advice is truly imbibe. <laughs> the idea that life is a marathon, not a sprint. And some experiences are worth it just for the experience and how it changes you versus what you accomplish. Well, thank you for that advice. And thank you for joining us today on the Campus Exchange podcast. Uh, I hope you had as much fun as we did. Yeah, absolutely. I love doing this. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.